Hello, this is Simon Brew. I'm the editor of Film Stories magazine and a very warm welcome to a very special episode of the Film Stories podcast. Come with me. And I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. In movies, movies that had stories. That the story just sucks them in. This is just the beginning. Stories. We would be honoured if you would join us. Hello and a very warm welcome to Film Stories with Simon Brew. I am Simon Brew. As always, that's absolutely everything you need to know about me. The aim of the podcast, though, well, as the title suggests, I'm here to talk of the stories of films. And I tend to talk about production stories, marketing stories, release stories, distribution stories, all those ingredients, really, that go towards making the films that we know and sometimes love. Just that, the films that we know and sometimes love. The films I tend to cover on this podcast lean more towards the mainstream than anything else. The films I'm interested in or invested in to some degree. Try not to do snark. Try not to punch down. This podcast is a celebration of cinema and an appreciation of just how difficult it is to get a movie made. Now, what you've happened upon here is one of my special episodes of Film Stories when I bring in a filmmaking guest to talk about their latest work or their body of work. And we get a bit of both in this particular case. So I've been trying to get the filmmaker Aline Brosh McKenna onto this podcast for a little while. She's long been on my list of people I really want to talk to. Courtesy primarily, actually, originally of a couple of films she wrote that I really like that not many people talk about. One of those is Morning Glory, directed by Roger Michelle, starring the brilliant Rachel McAdams, Diane Keaton and Harrison Ford. And the other is We Bought a Zoo that were that she penned the screenplay for was directed by Cameron Crowe and two really charming films that I, I'm a big fan of. We are going to be talking about those. Now, most people uh, really associate Aline Brosh McKenna and she's a writer, a director, a producer. She's all sorts. She does tons of stuff with a couple of projects uh, that perhaps the highest profile is The Devil Wears Prada that was uh, directed by David Frankel uh, that she wrote the script for. And then she created, along with Rachel Bloom, and uh, the Rachel you'll hear mentioned in this interview is Rachel Bloom, the hugely popular television series Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. What we're ostensibly here to talk about, though, is her feature directorial debut, Your Place or Mine, which landed on Netflix a week or two ago as this is being recorded. It stars Reese Witherspoon, who also produces, opposite Ashton Kutcher as well. And Aline Brosh McKenna writes, produces and directs that film. We're also going to, we name check a couple of other things in here. So just just to give you just a quick list of things just to put in your head before you listen to the conversation. Uh, The film Whiplash comes up, for instance, which I've covered before on this podcast. I've covered Morning Glory before on this podcast as well. Uh, written and directed by Damien Chazelle, that one. Uh, 1959's Pillow Talk is is loosely referenced when we end up talking about Doris Day and Rock Hudson. It will all make sense once you listen to this. Jennifer Lee, whose name I, I, I bring up at one point, is the writer and director of Disney's Frozen, co-director of Disney's Frozen, and she now heads up Walt Disney Animation Studios. And I also bring into the story the brilliant Nancy Myers, the director of films such as The Parent Trap, Something's Gotta Give, The Holiday, The Intern. And so her name crops up in the conversation as well. But I think that's all you need to know going in, he says, after reading a bit of a list. Uh, as always, I'm going to set the conversation up with a clip from the trailer of the film we're talking about, in this case, Your Place or Mine, which is available on Netflix now. And then the other side of that, you'll hear my conversation with the brilliant Aline Brosh McKenna. Hey, Debbie. Happy birthday, Peter. 20 years of friendship. Can you believe it? How do you still speak to me? Do you remember the first night we met? Never stops being weird. So weird. (laughs) 
Debbie, you need to take a break. I just need to be practical, which is what you have to be when you're a single mom. Right, right. Tragic. I got an idea. I'm coming to L.A. for a week. I'm going to look after Jack, and you can stay here. I don't know. You need help. Let me help. Taking care of Jack is a lot of work. I think I got this. I hope that you get what you want out of this trip. Find yourself a hottie. Maybe get waxed. Waxed? Oh, waxed. Waxed. Oh, well, that's just not going to happen. So that was a clip from Your Place or Mine, the directorial, the fit, sorry, let me correct that, the feature directorial debut, not the directorial debut of writer, producer, comic book writer, everything really from what I, I'm, I presume you head up the PCI, I know. Aline Brosh McKenna, thank you very much for joining me. Oh, I'm so happy to be here, Simon. Um, so I, I, we're recording this, um, it's nearly two weeks after the release of Your Place yeah. or Mine. And mm -hmm. I, I love doing interviews at this bit because like in the three days before, it, it just always looks like a whirlwind. And I'm yes. just wondering what the two weeks after is. Appreciating you've got, I read 15 other things on the go and that's not an exaggeration as I understand it. Um, but what's this bit? That's such a good, interesting question. You know, um, you, you carry this thing around with you. It's your special little baby unicorn. And you're, but you make it so that other people can watch it. You know, you don't really, I mean, I can only speak for myself, but I don't really make it just for myself. I'm making it for people to enjoy and, and bring into their lives. And so, you know, on the one hand, it felt very um, joyful and exhilarating. And then on the other hand, it felt like someone had stripped me and pushed me out the door at uh, the front door. You know, it's a very weirdly um, exciting, but nakedy feeling and you never really can know what things people will respond to and not and you know sort of seeing how people react and also I've been my first movie came out in 2000 yeah 2000 and so in those years the you know it was like you'd get a few reviews and you'd go to the movie theater and see how people were enjoying it and now the amount of feedback is just kind of overwhelming, you know, with social media and, you know, all of the press and there's just been, there's so much more of it than there used to be. So metabolizing that change, that shift as I've gotten, you know, deeper into my career has been really interesting. Because the missing ingredient, I mean, you've seen this more than most, I think, the missing ingredient in a film's release, and I talk to a lot of first-time directors who, who are just wrestling with this, to my eyes, is just time that that 10, 15 years uh, for, for time to do its work with a film. And you've seen you this mean in, terms, you mean in terms of what the movie is. Yeah. In terms of what, in terms of getting, because at the, the, as you say, the, the current release schedule is everything has to be a massive blast. Um, but then but you're, getting, you're getting feedback and input and tweets <laughs> and, and you could sort of gorge yourself on it or yeah. not. And I think you have to find, but in the past, you just would would have it was in the moment it was so um so much smaller the amount you could consume yeah but you bring something really interesting which is i don't think you really know how a movie has landed really until some time has gone by and you kind of see what place it occupies in the culture for instance we bought a zoo is become sort of a meme and my kids yes. find it incredibly funny because somehow people found that title funny or the idea of that movie funny or the, the something about, you know, 
and obviously not everybody because it's a very sincere sweet movie that a lot of people love but there's this also this sort of memification of that movie yeah. um as as so fascinating you just don't ever know it's like you hit this tennis ball and you never know what you're going to get back i remember that film just dripping into the uk I mean, it was just one of the it was just one of the shyest releases. And it's a lovely film. I'm really glad you brought that up. I love We Bought a Zoo. Um, the I, I mean, the other example, I mean, the obvious example you're asked about a lot, presumably, is is, is the because whenever when I told people I'm talking to you, it's just like you've got to ask her about Devil's Wears Prada. And I just kind of figure everyone asks you about Devil Wears Prada. But just acknowledging that the, the, what what's that 15 years on? Presumably right. that's that's become like ju just as active in front of you now. Yeah, it has it has its own life. You know, I, I in an interview recently, I said that, you know, Andy and Nate are definitely not together anymore. And that made news. And, you know, that's it. Yeah. In, you know, but but what's interesting about that movie is also to see what things um, stuck with people and. I also that the afterlife of a movie also depends very much on technologically where you land. And it just so happens that Devil Wears Prada and 27 Dresses are on television all the time. And that yeah. has to do with the aftermarket deals, really, that Fox made. So they're on all the time. Morning Glory, for whatever reason, doesn't have that kind of depth of distribution. It's not on TV as much. In fact, it wasn't on TV for a while and it's not on, I don't know what streamer it's on right now, but it's that, on Paramount Plus. Is it really? It's yeah, on Paramount. over here. It's on Paramount Plus. Yeah. Oh, good, good. Yeah. But that's one that um, that has a, had a different life in that people will come up to me and they know that they're praising a special little baby of mine that didn't um, didn't become a phenomenon like a couple of my other movies have or become a cultural document the same way. Morning Glory is more a thing where people feel like, well, that's that's a movie I love. I don't even know if other people have heard of it. Yeah. So that's a funny, and I, ju I just got a um, a message from a director who said, I watch that movie once a year. Yeah, same. Um, so that's a little bit more of a specialty item. And it's it's really interesting how the, these things, they have a life of their own. They just have a life of their own. And it's like a child. You have to accept that it has a life of its own. I think I see when I when I watch Morning Glory, which I adore, I just think you're the only person, I think, who watched Working Girl and thought, why can't Harrison Ford do more things like that? Oh, no. he's so really funny. Are you watching Shrinking on Apple? I'm not. No. Is he back oh, doing that? Oh, I might do then. Oh, so delightfully <laughs> funny and let a little less grumpy, um, but so funny. He has incredible timing. He's very generous with actors and um no, I, I love that, the man, I've been so lucky with these casts. They just have been incredible. And of course, Morning Glory is um, Roger Michelle. Yes. Who passed right. away a couple of years ago and just was such a dear, such a love and so talented and made so, left behind so many movies that are so wonderful. The, I, again, I, I, I list, I've listened to you on podcasts uh, uh, quite a lot so I, I understand you've talked about this as well but I, I just want to just quickly touch on it that you I, I mean Hollywood of course likes to box people in mm -hmm. and, and I've read lots of interviews you've been doing in the release for this film and it's it, it feels like there's a we've got a lean brush McKenna let's just talk about rom-coms 
Right. And I kind of, and I love rom-coms. I, 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 so there's no snobbery at all for me on this. But it's just like, I was right. I, I just did a little experiment after I watched uh, Your Place or Mine. Um, Your Place or Mine. And I was just like, well, that's a film that's about distance, expectation, romance, the optimum age to show someone James Cameron's aliens. And a world, <laughs> where, which is a great question, I think. Um, but a world where also people aren't horrible by default. And I don't know, you, you, the, you the filmmaker, are you going in with a genre in mind? Or are you? I just get the sense that you're finding your story. Yeah, gosh, Simon, uh, uh, that makes me feel very seen. I, I think of it from the point of view of, of characters, and yeah. that's where I always start. And I always start with a concept for the situation a character is in. So... Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, 27 Dresses, Morning Glory, Your Place or Mine, they're all to me predicaments. And yeah. someone that I spoke to said that I, you know, said you write coming of age movies for adults. Yeah, I read that. That really resonated with me because, you know, you come of age, sometimes it's through work. Sometimes it's through her fighting with Harrison Ford or Meryl Streep. And sometimes it's through a love relationship. And sometimes it's through buying a zoo. And sometimes it's through, so I don't think of it so the, the, the genre things to me are there as a guardrail or as a guide in a funny way. Um, but it's funny, I have been quite resistant to writing things where people run into each other, you know, where it's really a conventional rom-com. My first two movies were sort of, you know, definitely written in that. Um, and then 27 Dresses, I struggled with a lot to figure out how to have her end up getting married when she was obviously so far backwards still in her personal development. And the producer and I argued about it all the time because my point was at the place Jane is at at the end of the movie, she needs a little time for self-discovery. But of course, the genre di dictated that she ended up with, um, yeah. with Jimmy's character. And so uh, that was an interesting uh kind of conundrum I had, which is like, is that character really ready for a big wedding with 27 bridesmaids? I'm not sure. And in a funny way, Crazy X was a spiritual cousin to that movie where she didn't really, um, wasn't, her ending was not as focused on romance, but I did know, here's the thing, you know, when we were working on Crazy X, Rachel and I are both quite happily married and we, we kind of remarked all the time about how we were writing this almost dystopian um, <laughs> through the looking glass deconstruction of romantic comedies and then very happily going home to our spouses. So really your place or mine was, I wanted to write a movie where people fall in love and you feel like they deserve it. And it isn't, um, the obstacles are not exterior, they're interior. So, you know, obviously there's a little bit of um, circumstantial stuff that happens that gets them apart. But once they're apart, it's just that, in a, in a way she doesn't feel she deserves him and in a way he feels like he doesn't deserve her. And then this idea that they have been telling stories to themselves, which are very limiting, which I think we all do, even if it's just like, oh, I could never wear that pair of pants. And it's like, maybe you could wear that pair of pants. Maybe you could wear that jacket. Maybe you could try the squid ink pasta, you know? And I wanted to write about how kind of calcified our ideas about ourselves can become and what you have to overcome to be open to someone else. And that for me is what it's about. And it happens to be a romantic relationship, but, but for me, it could have been another type of relationship because it's, it is actually in a funny way, quite similar to what happens in morning glory, which is that yeah. 
Harrison needs to learn to get over himself and cook an egg, you know, and, and she needs to accept that this diminished circumstance is a great circumstance for her. So, you know, it's interesting you say that because I just, I think once you're dealing with love and romance and, and those issues, you get ushered over to a certain corner of the room, which I'm happy to be in because I love a lot of those movies, but I think there's a, there's an assumption that somehow the love narrative is less intellectual or less worthy. You know, I don't know why, because um, I'm assuming it's, you know, it's, it seems to be as important to men as it is to women. Um, But there's an interesting I don't know. I it, sometimes the re, the reactions to these things are, are quite gendered, so it'll be like it's cute, it's adorable, it's. And I wonder if you're right. If you're a man and you're writing action movies, do people say <laughs> it's very macho your movie? It's so manly your movie. You know, is it? Do we have a similar gendered response to what we think of as male jo- genres as we do to what we think of as female genres? I didn't know you were going to bring this up, but I, I, I wrote something down ahead of talking to you. So I went to, I, I, I mean, I'm a nobody, but I managed to bag into an early preview of the film Home Again. Uh-huh. Um, and, and of course, that's directed by Hayley Myers-Shire, but, right. but her mother came along to introduce the film. So there's Nancy Myers who walks to the front of the, I mean, completely owns the room. You're just sat there. It's Nancy Myers' room. Oh, you, you, know, you know where legend, you sit and legend, I'm quite legend. happy. Yeah. And so she takes the microphone and she just says, are there any men here? I was just like, okay, right. And then she said, men, what, what you, do any of you like my films? Um, and we are just like, well, yeah, of course we like your films. And then she's just like, that's interesting. Studio executives tell me men don't like the films. Then just introduced her daughter. That was it. I just <laughs> thought that was, I just that thought. Was I, but let me ask you, Simon, do you think Devil Wears Prada is a romantic comedy? Oh God, no, it's terrifying. But I've worked in <laughs> magazines. You know, it, it's it's a horror film. I uh, agree with you. It's a horror it's a mon- film. Yeah. Monster movie. It's a yeah. monster movie. And, and I see the cousin of that movie is Whiplash. Yeah, see, I see I think that. That's the most fabulous double feature you could ever do, um, because it's about power, authority, coming of age, yeah. finding self with this person that you're bouncing off of, to whom you don't really matter. Um, and so, but they, it's the tone and the subject matter gets you into this rom-com thing. So listen, I'm assuming that anybody who gets grouped into a thing, uh, kind of squiggles in that box a little bit. And ultimately I'm happy to embrace it. And for sure, Ashton and Reese are happy, really happy to embrace it. Um, but I don't, I just don't want the genre to, um, be, something that gets minimized or limited absolutely in a gendered way absolutely and i i mean i mean going to morning glory the 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 person who got me looking at that a little bit differently was i i I was lucky enough to have a conversation with jennifer lee before she she took over the world and 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 deservedly became became overlord of everything and (laughs) i think she'd just written wreck it ralph and, and hadn't quite got to Frozen. I presume she'd written it at that point. But she explained power dynamics on a scene-by-scene basis. And so, and that made, and then the first film I watched after, re-watched after, after that, was Morning Glory. And just seeing the new, and, and again, I'm an outsider. I'm a movie watcher. I'm not a screenwriter. I'm not going to make a film. So I can just sit on my side of the fence. But I just remember watching it and just think, oh shit, yeah, yeah, I, I get power that. Dynamics. 
yeah and, how it subtly should about a, a movie that comes out in the culture like frozen yeah and has as much of an impact today as it did the mm. day it came out it is it is there's something about that talk about having an afterlife there is something about that movie that if you show it to a three-year-old they will need to watch it on a loop for the next two years and dress the same as the characters in the movie. It's so profoundly compelling. And I think why are some stories, you know, I think some people are Odyssey people and some people are Iliad people. You know, I think, I think there's just different type of types of stories because often I'll find like, I'll turn something on and I'll think this is well done. This is just not for me. It's just not a story that, that unlocks my lizard brain yeah. And why certain stories speak to certain people um, and why we turn something on and immediately go, oh, this is, this speaks to me is, you know, these are, these are mysterious things that as a filmmaker, all you can really do is I'm, I'm very like with, with your place around, I was very interested in like what makes a friendship and what makes a romantic relationship. And I'm very interested when people say, oh, my spouse is my best friend. I've never connected to that because to me, best friend has platonic overtones. Yeah. Now my best friend is my friend, Kate, and we go to Costco together and <laughs> it's a different thing from a spouse. And I wanted to show sort of what are the moments of transformation that makes them go from, from friends into this, this romantic relationship. And I was really tickled by just the idea of getting into someone else's bed. <laughs> that's the bit that I'll clip and just put out as clickbait. You know how the world. Oh, works, really? Oh, yeah, yeah, that's it. That's it now. Um, everything's reduced to one sentence if we're not careful, isn't it? Um, the the thing with this as well, though, is I, I I mean you've got a really stylish opening credit on the film. I like how you very subtly morph from producer to writer to director. Um, very very classy. I like that an awful lot. But when you know you're going to direct and when yeah. you've directed before and when you've overseen TV show before, are you, does it change what you put on a piece of paper? This is my dim question, but I'm really interested yeah. in it because there, there are moments when you've talked in the past about how the closest relationship you had with the director was on David Frankel with David yeah. Frankel on Devil Wears yeah. Prada and he kept you close. But that was not that's not usually the norm to my understanding. But here you're doing you're doing splits. I mean, it's, you're doing split screens. You're scrolling all over the screen. You look like you're having an absolute ball. And I'm yeah. just curious what's what's on the piece of paper that's different when you know that you're the right. person who's got to sign it off at the very end. That's such a good um, question. I mean, the closest directors that I was the closest to in the making of the movie were Frankel and Fletcher on 27 Dresses, oh. um, who I was in close touch with, and Roger Michelle, where I was on the movie most of the time, in like actually on yeah. set most of the time. Um, so those were the three, and I got to learn so much from them and their process. They're both, they're all three just tremendously kind people. And I, um, I actually worked with Anne on a movie. I did a little week of a rewrite on a movie with Anne and she said something that I, a story I've been telling for however many years since that movie came out, but um, Anne and I walked into the production office and a bunch of people walked, ran over to her and asked her eight different questions, you know, and she went the red one Friday, James. <laughs> well, you know, she answered a bunch of questions and then the people walked away and she looks at me and she goes, well, I hope some of that works out. And, um, you know, when you're, 
when you're the writer and someone else is directing, you're really more in this space of suggesting, collaborating. Um, you'll have moments of mind meld and you'll have moments of not mind meld. Like in Prada, when Annie comes in after her makeover, David shoots it in slow motion. And I felt that that was male gazy. Right. And okay. Yeah. And so we had, we had a moment where I was like, I feel like that is something where we're pulling out of her point of view into someone seeing her and her beauty, appreciating her beauty in a third person way. And, um, you know, we talked about it, but his movie, he wins. And so on this, I got to do things that were really enjoyable. Um, just as you said, just to technically play with things and this idea of um, closeness, sameness, and the sort of the Doris Day, Rock Hudson, you know, merging characters in a frame, but in an updated fashion. So I was lucky enough to work with Florian Ballhaus, who was also the, the DP on Prada, who I've known for the 16 years since then, and stalked, basically. And I was <laughs> so lucky that he was available when I wanted to make this movie. And actually, he was at the end of a very long run of work and was quite tired, but did it, you know, um, for me, which I will be endlessly grateful for. That credit sequence is... When I watch it, it seems delightfully effortless. It is the most um, bespoke. We storyboarded it with this very famous storyboard artist named Warren Drummond. We storyboarded every minute of it. And it was our, we called it the perpendicular montage because someone is always going this way and someone is going this way. And so those frames are designed so that, that somebody moves through the frame this way and then the other character comes in this way. So that's why we called it the perpendicular montage. And that's all very, very, very written out and scripted and tremendously fun. All those split screens were tremendously fun and then also tremendously technologically challenging and sort of on set, figuring out the timing, using, you know, literally timing how long it takes for them to walk in and sit down and um, such fun, such fun and such a contrast to sitting in your office by yourself and thumb twiddling and you know, it's so solitary being a writer and it's so lifefully social being on a set and collaborating with these people. I, I see. I'm proving how movie heathen I, I am because uh, the Doris Day and Rock Hudson things only just occurred to me because that yeah. was all about decency, wasn't it, at the time? They weren't allowed to be in the same scene. I th that, that's my vague recollection of that. Maybe, maybe. <laughs> and that had such a um, kind of wonderfully arch candy box um Peyton Reed did a very good homage to it in Down Down to Down Love. With, yeah, yeah. Down by Love. The Ewan um, McGregor Reese Witherspoon. Yes. Yeah, yeah. It's I, a lovely no, film. Renee, Zell, Renee Zellweger. That's but it. I, sorry, I yeah. Wanted to do a more organic um, version of that, where like you know, Ashton, the bathtub that Ashton is is her bathroom. It's tiny. It's got books everywhere. It's got products everywhere, and she's in the pristine tub. So. I was trying to contrast them as much as I could. And and one other thing about doing split screens is you get bo both performances all the way through. So ordinarily you'll get this person's face and then this person's face and then this person's face and then this person's face. And occasionally you'll get this, right? And occasionally you'll get this. But in split screen, they're both here full frame. So you can see the whole performance, the listening as well as the speaking. And that delighted me. So, so for example, when she first comes to Brooklyn, her shot is a complete oneer. 
Yeah. And then he's his scene is cut to match hers, but she's in a oneer. There are a lot of long oneers in the movie, but this one you can see her perform all the way through. Um, and the one where they're on the phone and she's at the sink and he's at the table, there's that there are very few cuts in there, but also you can see both of them all the way through. And that when you have performance like for performers like we had, that made it delightful. Can I ask the bit that uh, I don't think you're being asked an awful lot about as well, which is the third hat that you wear on this film as well, um, yeah. because the producer element is, is yeah. I, I mean, as crucial to guarding what you were trying to do there as much as anything else. I mean, me on the outside, if I was a producer and I saw a writer come in with a split screen, screen thing, I just thought, well, that doubled the amount of work I've got to do, hasn't it? Right. That's right. So, so what what's the producer element on something like this? Well, I've got, you know, because I made a relatively inexpensive television show yeah. with a lot of musical numbers that were quite technical, these were our, my musical numbers. You know, we did what we had done with musical numbers, which was, you know, um, we storyboarded them, we planned them very carefully. So I'd already kind of done that with the musical things, but I'm very good at cutting for money. And maybe I shouldn't tell people for that, but, but tell people that, but you know, towards the beginning of the movie, we had to cut some, some, you know, dollars out of the budget. And I just was so used to in Crazy X making, making a lot out of a little, um, partly because we had a genius line producer who really helped us do that. So I, I have a lot of um, instincts about how to do things cheaply and sometimes had to be encouraged to kind of think outside of that box and take advantage of scale, yeah. you know, and and put a camera up in the corner on a balcony and get that extra shot. And, you know, so as a producer managing myself as a director, sometimes I was saying like, do the extra shot, do the extra setup. It's okay. You have time. The, I, I read that you test screened this as well, that you were yeah. able to get that in. And again, I'm just fascinated by the person going in because ordinarily if you put a writer, a producer and a director in a test screen, <laughs> test screening, they're going to come out, I would have thought, with three completely different things. And I, I'm, I'm just wondering about the dynamic with you, really, when you're sat watching right. it, when it's been that close to you. So you said right at the start that this is like something that you brought into being and... Yes. So I had two amazing producers on this movie, um, Michael Costigan, who was on me well, with me on day one, who I've known for 20 some years, um, who was at my elbow just, you know, the whole time. And then Laura Neustadter, who works with Reese, who came on with Reese um, and Reese is a producer as well. Yes, but day to day on set, Lauren and Michael were there. So I always had that extra set of eyes. Heather who, um, Morris, who works at my company, um, who had also, you know, was there through the whole process. And then really the people at Netflix are extremely smart and very helpful. And my executives were really helpful. So you have other people to bounce things off of. What's great about a test screening is somebody says, well, I don't think this is going to be funny. And a couple of times I would say, well, let's wait and see what the test audience thinks and what they're picking up on and what they're understanding. And, you know, you're sort of, you're relying at that point on the wisdom of crowds and I, I love that. And then we did two screenings. We did a premiere. Um, in Amazing. Then, yeah. And, and so seeing it with an audience, it was really just tremendously thrilling because, you know, with a comedy and, and the audience also re responded to all of the twists and the surprises and they, you know, gasped and they applauded. And so that was really interesting. <laughs> But I do think most people have seen 
um, my movies at home. And so I think, you know, especially things that didn't work well at the bottom, I would say probably 90% of the people who've seen Morning Glory saw it in their house, whether it was on a DVD or, yeah. So I, I don't, um, I don't stigmatize that, but seeing it with an audience gives you so much of a better of a sense of how people are responding to things. And sometimes simply just what they're in. For example, I'll give you an example. A very small number of people thought that Peter was um, Jack's father. Interesting. And had never occurred to me. Interesting. So there's a teeny uh, phrase looped into the beginning where he says, he's not my kid, but um, just in case, you know, I just didn't want that small percentage of people to think, oh my God, this asshole has a kid that he hasn't seen in all these years. Yeah, I, I got it the wrong way around. I saw Prada on DVD and I saw Morning Glory and We Bought a Zoo in a cinema. So I, I am the worst <laughs> test audience for everything, I think, on stuff like this. One of the things that I've seen throughout, I, I really love that you do this and I hear it in lots of interviews, is you seem to go out of your way to name check your collaborators and name check the person, um, uh, you know, lower down, lower down the credits, if you like, um, ju just the, the kind of people who otherwise might be invisible to people like me. And I did want to ask you this, but I also with that inflection on it, because you've talked too about what you took, took from the directors you've worked with before, but what do you hope your collaborators take from you? My hope always is that they have the most open environment for their expertise. Yeah. So I love experts. 99% of the people on a film set are experts in what they do, whether it's running cable, hanging lights, holding a boom, being an AD, like they're experts. And what I like to do is try and clear the deck so that they can bring to me into the film, their expertise, because sometimes I'll say, oh, it should be this. I try and scan for the little micro expressions, which say, I have a better idea and try and draw that idea out of them. Doesn't mean I will always take that idea, but I really like to hear what people's opinions and thoughts are so that I can kind of, from the perspective of their expertise. Yeah. And so I just love, you know, and it, it's not just the department heads, it's all the way down. If you can, I shouldn't say down, across, if you can find someone who is willing to share their insights about, you know, this would be a little better, or have you considered this? Or, you know, and, and people have their expertise. So when I meet people to work on stuff, I try and find people who, um, might feel comfortable, you know, speaking up. And I also try and find people who are comfortable going, what? Yeah. It's just the simple act of going, what? I don't understand you is going to prevent a lot of misunderstandings or things where you, you know, you go on set and you have a different idea. Um, so really it's like trying to open the channels of communication as much as possible so that people can contribute the wisdom that they've spent years and years and years accumulating. There's a story of Groundhog Day, and I can't remember the exact moment, but I do remember this bit of it, of there was a problem with the film and it was a junior member of the crew and she just stuck her hand up, um, as I remember it, and just said, no, that wouldn't happen, like really nervously and stuff like that. Um, right. and, and they listened to her and it improved the movie. And yeah. the reason that story sticks out for me is I've not heard anything like that in 30 years since. 
of covering mood. That feels oh, no, that happens all the time. Actually, Frankel had a story in Prada about um, there was a wardrobe change that he was mulling, and yeah. the, the costume the costumer it wasn't the head of the department. It was the costumer who said to him, "You must do this because otherwise it doesn't make sense." Yeah, you must do this, and um, yeah, it's 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 you want all these people around you to bring their best and I the way I always express it is I want people who are putting their pants on in the morning being like I can't wait to get there I'm really excited yeah. and I know my contributions will be heard and listened to but not you can't take every idea but you want that context and um I love that and a lot of the actors in the movie are people that I've known and so they can also bring that sense of like maybe I could do this or maybe I could try that it's why it's why I think the smaller story It's one of the reasons this podcast exists. I think the smaller stories matter, because I think if we're going to make film reachable for people and make it feel like it's for them. First of all, I think it's important. I, I love the fact that you tell the story, of the, the, the story, your stories, but also these micro stories of the making of a film suddenly make it a bit more accessible. I just think mm-hmm. it could be me. Um, yeah. With that in mind, you put out a tweet. I'm nearly out of time, but I did want to. I did want to ask you this. Um, you put out a tweet last week, um, yeah. and reachability is a huge thing for me because I grew up somewhere where a, a career in film was just not an option. No one was making right. films around me or anything like that. Um, and it was a picture of you in 1990, and your caption was, and I, I know you know it. I'm just describing it just for audio uh, purposes. Right. But your caption was along the lines that at that point you thought you might be able to write. Um, and then here you are, you've directed a feature film, you've created a much loved TV series, uh, which ran and, and, and still is bringing you lots of love. You've written these films, you've done all of this work. How accessible was that path to you back then? Did you, did, was that open to you? And then it's a very obvious, predictable question, but I do, it's an important one to me. Um, what's the message to those who are staring at that path now and thinking it's not for them? I mean, for me, the, so I grew up in a suburb of this, of New York. And so, in a, you know, not, and with, with relative amounts of privilege, but my parents were brought up in, in poverty essentially, and had, um, especially my father had sort of gotten themselves to this place. And on the one hand, we're quite assimilated. My dad was quite successful at work. My mother speaks many languages. She's very charming, but they never felt really, um, it's just when you have immigrant parents where English is not their first language and you have different food and would they also weren't really very socially connected um, because of, I think that isolation, my mom's friends were almost always French <laughs> and my dad was a scientist and worked really hard. And so um, I didn't have the sense of that possibility. My grandmother was someone who couldn't read or write. And so I wore her necklace when I graduated from Harvard. You know, Harvard was the place where I started to see other people doing things that I felt like, oh, okay. You know, if, if because college is a great kind of leveling, it isn't, it isn't, but it can yeah. be a very, you're living in the same crappy dorm and eating the same crappy pasta. And so you feel like, okay, there's a sort of leveling and I would look to, I always look to people who seem to me like they were better knitted into the culture and the mores and than I had been. Um, But I'm grateful for the perspective because I think, you know, my mom is French. 
North African and my dad is is was Israeli. And I think that gave me a window into the world. And, and listen, my dad wasn't in show business, but he went from being a you know, pretty modest guy growing up in a very, very tiny house um, with his his dad um, making tile and his mom washing bottles to a pretty comfortable life in a different country. Um, so that kind of get up, we have a lot of get up and go in our family. Uh, my brother's a, a very successful hotelier and there's just a, a lot of get up and go. What was the bit where you knew this was this was you? Where, where did you fall in love with stories? Because I presume that's at the very heart of. Yeah, it, it, was, it was I I and my son was like this, too. I mean, from the ages of nine to 13, I always had a book in my hand, was reading at the dinner table, reading before bed. And, you know, uh, uh, um, you know, omnivorous. So so Jane Eyre, but Archie Comics and um, it was just reading, reading, reading and all different, you know, trashy. Judith Krantz, Anne Rule, who's a crime writer, Little House on the Prairie, but also I, for whatever reason, I read so much John Updike. I have no idea what I related <laughs> to in like middle-aged men in Connecticut cheating on their wives, but John Updike, John Irving, I read all the John Irvings. You know, I was reading, 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 and that's, it comes from books. And is that, is that the thing for the person who, who perhaps is listening to this, who sat at home thinking, I, I've got no way in, this isn't for me? Because it, is, I hear that a lot. Yeah, but reading is... a story, I've said this before, people are hungry, they're thirsty, they're desperate. If you can tell a story um, in whatever form it is, people, people love it. It's transformative. Um, all right, let's do one more question before I'm going to take off and try and make more stories. Oh, well, first of all, uh, it, it's obvious you can give me the exclusive about Morning Glory 2 anytime you like, because that's the one that I'm in for. Um, Lean Machine, can I just ask about that? Because that's now clearly a crucial part of what you're doing going forward as well, yes. that you've yes. built up this accumulation of knowledge and, and work and 15 different differing projects with presumably yeah. a whole gamut of people involved. Can you yes. just snapshot that for, for us? So I, I called it Lean Machine because a lean is a challenging thing for people. So if it, the company's called Lean Machine and then it's a lean machine and that helps people learn my name. Um, but we what I wanted to do was be the producer that I loved having, which is a producer who can break story. Really? So um, I used to work a lot with this producer named Bobby Newmeyer and we would sit for two hours and talk about story. It was like being in a little writer's room um, and, you know, I've done that with a lot of other producers too, but to find someone who really can help you crack the story and has the patience to sit there and say, what about this? What about that? Um, we're very, very writer focused this at this company. So what I'm trying to do is, is have writers create something that they're proud of. And, and to be honest, try and work on some of the projects that I've loved that you're not seeing as much right now. Um, different types of comedies really and dramas, um, with certain types of people, certain types of stories that maybe we're not <clears throat> seeing as much. And, and it's really just a process of shoving them through. And I enjoy my working on my own things, but I really enjoy also being a doula for other people to help them bring their stories into the world. And that brought to an end my conversation with Aline Brosh McKenna. She had to run off and make a whole lot more stories. Her film, Your Place or Mine, is available on Netflix. She wrote, produced, directed it, starring Reese Witherspoon and Ashton Kutcher. That is available worldwide now. 
And that brings me to the end of another episode of Film Stories. Thank you so much for listening. You can find more from Film Stories at filmstories.co.uk. You can find more from me on Twitter at Simon Brew. You can find Film Stories on Twitter at Film Stories as well. And you can find our magazines, our Blu-ray at store.filmstories.co.uk. And if you want to support the podcast, it's patreon.com slash Simon Brew. I'm going to crack on with writing your regular episode of Film Stories now. Huge thanks to Aline Brosh McKenna for sparing so much extra time for the podcast. We overran by about 10 minutes thanks to her generosity. I really appreciate that. The main thing, as always, is you all take care. You all look after yourselves. I'll be back soon with another bunch of Film Stories. Until then, bye-bye. 